0: Welcome back. I have some exciting news to bring to everyone. 95 Adventures has its very own coffee blend. That's right. The 95 Adventures blend is up for sale now. The reason we went with coffee over t shirts or any other sort of merchandise is because we love coffee. And our guests are always saying, Why wouldn't you want to do what you love? And so we took their advice, we took our own advice that we give out, and we took the step and made our own coffee blend. It took about two to three months going back and forth and tasting some good coffee, some bad coffee, figuring out the notes, and we could not be happier with the final product. So if you want to get it, check it out. It's We sell it on Facebook, Instagram. Um, hit us up on there right now. We're working on a website, but it, I'm just so happy that we have something that we really enjoy, that we can drink in the morning before the hustle and bustle starts and the kids and taking them places and whatever. We can relax and have a nice cup of nine five adventure coffee now and it just just makes me so happy so if you want to check it out give us a shout and we'll definitely hook you up we sell it k-cups grinds and whole beans now laura lee always a sponsor of the podcast and always the best realtor especially in the brazos valley but i think in the entire world she has helped us out with so many different things Not to mention getting us in our very first dream home and being able to just relax when we come home and drink our coffee in the morning and just everything's just wonderful in this house and it's all because of Laura Lee. She's done so much for us and she works so hard and don't take my word for it. Give her a call, text her at any time and see why I feel the way I do that she is the best realtor in the world. Her number is 979-218-2315. That's 979-218-2315. She also drinks 95 Adventures coffee in K-Cups. So if you have a question about that and you want to know if it's good, give her a shout. And at least just ask her if she likes the coffee. Alright, um, before I introduce the guest, the honorary sponsor of the podcast, hooking me up with two guests in a row, is 1541 Coffee Shop. If you're not going to drink a nice pot of the 95 Adventures blend, Go to 1541 Coffee Shop. They sell amazing coffee. They sell amazing pastries made by hand with a lot of love. And you can really taste it. They do beer and wine and appetizers in the evening, which if you listen to the podcast with Sam when he was on there, they, their, their appetizers will make you hungry. Just listen to them talk about it. And they're like meals. So anyway, I can't say enough good things about 1541 Coffee Shop. Go there. Buy a cup of coffee and tell them 9-5 Adventures. Tell them you heard from here. 9-5 Adventures sent you over there. Um, Okay, this episode is with Stephen O'Shea. He's done just a cool adventure. You talk about being an adventure podcast or the name of the podcast is 9-5 Adventures. Well, Stephen O'Shea went on the ultimate adventure. Not really having any sailing experience at all. Two guys... Sometimes three, but really two guys went on a long trip sailing the ocean to raise awareness for veterans coming out of the military. And uh, the, the 22 veterans that commit suicide a day and all that good stuff. And they, they decided they wanted to go and do it and make a documentary about it. And so it's called Hell or High Seas. You can hit him up there and find out more about it. Uh, he said the clips are on YouTube, so go check the YouTube out of Hell or High Seas. And they have Skeleton Crew Sailing on Instagram, Heller High Seas on Instagram, and then you can follow Stephen O'Shea on Instagram. He's an author. So I won't do any more. Stephen does a great job in telling the story, and go and support him any way you can. Without anything else, please enjoy Stephen O'Shea. All right, Stephen. Here we go. Uh, We're sort of live, recording live. All right, here we are. (laughs) Yeah, well, thanks for doing this. Like I said before, man, this is, I really appreciate it. And I got your your contact information from Sam again at fifteen forty one. Yeah, he um, actually
1: he brought you up last time I was at the shop. So,
0: oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. He said uh, he made an appearance on the podcast. He did. He so did. Cool. He's
0: fun. Yeah, I like I like Sam a lot. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. I just got done making a little promotional video for fifteen forty one. So
0: yeah, I saw that. I was I, I actually complimented him on um, on how. Like professional, it looked. Oh, cool! I was like, man, that's a really cool. Like, it looks awesome, man. The whole, the way it was edited and the story and the narration, it looks. It just looked really, really nice and professionally done. So I complimented him on it, and he was like, "Yeah, this, this is a friend of mine that did it." Oh, cool. So I guess do you know from just going in the coffee shop?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been going there since they opened, and um, that was back when I was just finishing up Texas A and M, graduating from there, and I felt bad because I'd kind of camp out. <laughs> for hours at a time and that you know that little corner room they yeah. started calling it the office just because i would go work there for like eight hours a day really <laughs> so coming back after everything i felt like it was a you know an opportunity to give back to them and yeah i think it turned out nicely so. did
0: you always grow up in this area
1: i moved here when my i mean my family moved here when i was pretty young maybe like eight so yeah i went to a consolidated high school and then went to Texas A&M, even though that wasn't the original plan. But uh, it turned out to be a great experience. And after Texas A&M, I got my PhD in Scotland. Spent a good oh, number of years there. That's that pretty great. awesome. I love that, yeah. Um, Scotland is just beautiful. It's a remote corner of the world that uh, not a lot of people get a chance to see on a good day, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, can, you can plan a whole you know, week long trip to go into the highlands and you have to plan it, you know, months and months in advance and then you never know what the weather's gonna be. But
0: wind and rainy. Mm-hmm. That's what I think that's what people say when they try to go play golf. Yeah. <laughs> like they plan. they have to reserve a tea time like it's... again years in advance. And right? then they get over there and it's like I mean, you got to play. If you're going to play in the crappy weather, you got to play in the crappy weather.
1: Which is pretty incredible that that's where golf originated, right? Yeah. It's a challenging (laughs) place to play. Crazy Scottish people. (laughs) So how did you come about
0: sailing around and documenting it to raise awareness for the veterans and all that? I'll let you explain more about what the documentary is about because I I have read up a little bit on it. From what Sam told me and then what I've researched or whatever. But how did you come about from going and doing that to this whole adventurous sailing trip?
1: That is the question. (laughs) Um, I mean, it started probably seven or eight years ago. I started uh, researching the narratives of combat veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was actually while I was at Texas A&M. And it just became kind of like a mission of mine to really... Try and bridge the gap between the civilian and the veteran worlds, you know? There just seemed to be a serious disconnect. And I found myself culprit to that as well as soon as I started researching it. You know, there's just so much that I was oblivious to. Um, and these were my peers, and guys like Taylor were my friends. And they were going overseas and coming back and seemingly, you know, like 22 veterans commit suicide a day. That's not a number that you can just really neglect in my mind. And I ended up, that's what I went to Scotland for. Um, I was writing a short story cycle about combat veterans, but um, specifically about their return to the civilian world. And I interviewed dozens of, you know, veterans. And part of that whole process was traveling to Guam, which happened to be where Taylor was stationed at the time he invited me out there because there were a number of female helicopter pilots who he thought had like really compelling stories and women in the military just in general you know it's kind of like an extreme case of you might think men have it rough you know and then (laughs) you go talk to you know a female helicopter pilot and you're just like wow
0: i mean you're throwing a woman into a man's world
1: yeah and and, i mean it's just like all the stereotypes and um just kind of worst-case scenarios that you can imagine in the business world with women yeah. is like amplified times 10 in the military. So they put up with a lot of crap, <laughs> and I respect them tremendously for that. But that happened to be where Taylor and I reconnected, and um, we kind of came up with the idea for the whole sailing trip while I was there. <laughs> really? Yeah. So what What year was this? Let's see. That was probably two thousand. 16? Yeah. Okay. 2016. Summer of. And um, that happened to be the same year that Taylor was getting out of the military. So he was wrapping up his six years when I went and visited. And he had, like, you know, like any of the guys coming out of the military, he didn't really know what he wanted to do with his life. And he didn't understand how his experience and his skills in the military could translate to the civilian world For him as a rescue swimmer and a helicopter crew chief he could you know only do really a handful of things in the civilian world like be an EMT or sort of like a glorified lifeguard sort of thing um, and he you know he like explored and found some things where he could he could train people in like private, um, security forces and how to swim and operate, you know, in those conditions. But uh, I think he wanted more out of life and I think he was a little disillusioned with the military and his time in the Navy. And so, um, yeah, he just wanted kind of like a change of scene and a change of pace. So we planned, we (laughs) kind of came up with a crazy idea to sail around the world. Uh, and I was in the middle of my PhD, so none of it actually made sense, you know. Like, have it, you
0: ever sailed before?
1: I'd sailed, like, I mean, I would, I would probably say no. <laughs> yeah. So I'd I'm been gonna... on a sailboat. <laughs> I, you know, after that summer, I kind of got motivated and went to Scotland, and I was the first mate of, you know, like a thirty-foot racing sailboat in the kind of fjords and bays there on the west coast of Scotland, but nothing serious. So, it was just, you know, I mean, I guess I grew up thinking that, you know, sailing is, sailing is a pretty romanticized yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, just,
0: yes, it is. It's like, right. you take a girl out on right. a sailboat, you have a nice evening, watch the sunset, yeah. go park the boat. Yeah.
1: Maybe you spend like a few weeks sailing the Greek Isles and the Mediterranean or something. Yeah. And, Real smooth and it's just water. it's beautiful, yeah. scenic, peaceful. Um <laughs> And, you know, that's kind of what I guess we envisioned at first. Uh, But Taylor was, you know, like I said, Taylor was getting out of the military and he had a really tough time transitioning back into the civilian world. And as as like this became like the impetus that was to carry Taylor through his first year back into society, you know, it garnered a certain amount of gravity and, like, seriousness to it that we couldn't really ignore, and, I mean, I'm a storyteller, and Taylor had a really compelling story from his background all the way through his military experience, and I'd also been, you know, interviewing combat veterans for the past six years of my life, and it happened to be my specialty with, like, a psychology, you know, minor to really delve into what's happening to these guys and why they're experiencing what they are. And it just seemed a waste to really just throw all that away to go on, you know, like a find yourself kind of journey (laughs) on a sailboat, you know? (laughs) So we ultimately decided to make it about something bigger than ourselves. And if we were going to do this and invest so much time and money and effort into a trip that we were going to take, me fresh out of, you know, a PhD, which you can really use that momentum to follow a career in academia. It's just not really what I wanted at that time. Um, so, yeah, we ultimately decided that this was uh, an opportunity for us to draw attention to not only what Taylor went through coming out of the military, but uh, what I had been researching for the past six years. <laughs> that was so, a lot of words. So
0: <laughs> I get, like, how, after, after this how do you put it together it's just you two right that were that plan to sell like that was the initial plan just you two to sell it yeah now you have to have somebody to film <laughs> and we had that discussion beforehand that you bought all this camera equipment Yeah. and then right at the last second the dude bails on you so you have all this camera equipment now now you've got to find another crew or mm-hmm. another person to come and film mm-hmm. uh, did the people who filmed it or did you film it
1: I filmed most of it
0: so it, was, it really was almost just you two on the boat.
1: For most of the part, for most of the whole trip, yeah. It was just us. So two.
0: you're filming and sailing this boat. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's <incredible>. work. <laughs> <laughs> it was work.
1: And we were writing as well. So um, And constantly trying to reach out to production companies or anybody that we could get a hold of. So um, we were busy. Yeah. Yeah. So you're trying to sell the stuff while you're sailing, or you're just,
0: you do it first, you film it, and then you come back and do that process.
1: We ended up locking in a production company after the first half of our trip because we had to winter the boat in Valdivia, Chile. Mm-hmm. Um, our initial plan had been to sail all the way to Cape Horn. and From uh, where? So let's, like, let's do yeah, the let's whole map it,
0: map it out for everybody.
1: Okay, so we left from Pensacola, Florida, and we sailed in a straight line through the Gulf of Mexico to Cancun, the tip of the Yucatan Peninsula. And then we worked our way down the Caribbean, crossed the Panama Canal, um, had our last sort of northern hemisphere pit stop in Ecuador. And then we... That blanket's
0: from Ecuador, by the way. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> cool. my father-in-law brought it back for my, my wife.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got some ponchos and stuff that we bought there in preparation for the colder weather. Um, so then, yeah, from Ecuador, we, we went out about 1,000 miles offshore sailed down all the way to Valparaiso, Chile. And that stretch of sailing turned out to be 3,200 miles, and it was about five weeks at sea. And then we got we, we reached Valparaiso like nine months after we left Florida. So it was a long, long <laughs> journey.
0: That is a really long trip. Yeah,
1: and we... The weather had already been, you know, like summer down there is winter. Or sorry, summer up here is winter down there. And so the conditions in the wintertime in Patagonia are just uninhabitable. You know, it's a barrage of storms that come up from Antarctica. And the waves are, I mean, they're boat breaking. So we ultimately just had to leave the boat down there for the winter. And then we flew home. And that's when I picked up a production company. Because they saw that you know we'd been thoroughly documenting the entire expedition up until this point, and Patagonia promised to be the highlight of the whole trip. So nice, yeah,
0: that's awesome. So so you just to raise awareness for vets. Oh, now we get the dog barking. Hold on, I'm gonna pause it. Okay. And we're back. <laughs> just like the taking care of the dog barking issues. A bunch of rebels out there. neighborhood kids coming by. Um, so. You're documenting this trip the whole way. I guess Taylor's used to sailing. So did he kind of show you the ropes? Did he instruct you on stuff like how to do things? And then what kind of issues do you run across? I don't want you to give everything away from the documentary, but like some of the challenges that, because open water like that is humbling.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, don't get me wrong. Taylor had sailed before we went on this trip, but he'd never done anything like this trip. He'd probably never... That's crazy. Even... So there's
0: two of you that are just like, hey, we're going to get in this boat. Have you, have you done any sailing like this? Nope.
1: You? <laughs> nope. Well, we had this kind of crazy theory that we would learn as we went and that the conditions would be you know mild at first and then they'd steadily get more challenging. So by the time we finally got to Cape Horn, which is essentially the Mount Everest of sailing, we would you know have the experience and the skill to conquer it so to speak um but we crossed the gulf of mexico in the middle of hurricane season and that was (laughs) (laughs) that was (laughs) oh no almost almost ended the trip right there that's for sure um we tried. i mean don't get me wrong we tried to really plan it out and be smart about it. And there's a high pressure system coming from the north that was supposed to just carry us across the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. But it turns out when a cyclone starts to form, uh, high pressure systems disappear. All, you know, all bets are off. Yeah, exactly. So um, we ended up. Yeah, we went. We went through about four days of storms when we were crossing the Gulf of Mexico. And um, how big a boat is this? Thirty-six feet. And just in the Gulf of Mexico, um, the waves weren't as big as we saw down south. But they're really steep because you have kind of like, you know, drop offs in the continental shelves. And um, just the Gulf as a whole is kind of like a, if you if you picture it like a bathtub, you know, the there's kind of like that sloshing effect. Yeah. So that'll happen when you're kind of in a more enclosed body of water versus like an open ocean so in an open ocean you'll have like a steady train of waves and they'll kind of be like gradual because they've been stretched out over time but in the gulf they're just kind of really steep and short <laughs> and these i mean in the worst of the storm we were in at least 30 foot waves so we're talking steep waves that are almost as big as our boat
0: just crashing
1: yeah and just like walls of water shooting up on either side of the boat when you come over a crest and punching holes through the tips of waves and
0: what kind of panic is that for somebody who's never sailed before (laughs) so you're going across and you see it for the very first time and inside you like so not what like what you're gonna see on there but the first time inside of yeah your eyeballs what what was that that feeling like
1: oh man it was (laughs) terrifying for sure um i and i had never seen anything like that and i had no idea what was going to happen. So I think when the front of the storm hit us was the scariest part. Uh, Cause it goes from, you know, like it, it hits you like a wall when you're out there on the water. Yeah, It's not like just kind of like a gradual uptake of wind and waves. It just kind of all just slams into us. And we had reefed our sails, which is like making them as small as possible up into the point of the storm. But the winds were so strong that it was too much still. And so what was happening was our mast was essentially like dipping into the water and our boat was just going fully sideways and waves were just crashing over us. And, um, yeah, I mean, when you, when you get into a situation like that, sailboats are meant to stay upright, but if you, you know, leave it and if you just try and lie a hole or, or if you're just kind of like sitting ducks, you're gonna flip, you know, it's only a matter of time. You really... The end game is to keep your bow, the front of your boat, pointed into the swells at a certain angle. And you have to just keep moving. Um, otherwise, you're toast, essentially. So we had to do a lot of kind of drastic maneuvering. And Taylor and Taylor and um, his Navy friend, Kel, who had joined us just to cross the Gulf of Mexico, had to go and pull down the whole mainsail in the middle of this storm. And waves were, waves were crashing over the boat to the point that they washed taylor and kel off their feet and both of them the only reason they didn't get swept out to sea was because they grabbed onto something
0: oh they just barely made and what kind of luck is that to grab onto something that's all wet
1: yeah and you're blind so you're just reaching for anything to grab and
0: just tossed yeah i just got a picture in my mind of like you know i've been on a boat i've been thrown from a boat like Mm -hmm. i've been in some rough storms or whatever but never in a sailboat and never in that right like dra- like that big of an environment so yeah.
1: so it was I mean that was a moment where I just thought that we were all dead you know because if they had been washed out to sea and I'm stuck at the helm there's no way for me and it was it was nighttime so there's no way for me to turn around and find them in the water and even turning around in conditions like that could flip the boat yeah um, it's
0: almost worse going the other direction yeah
1: yeah So they ended up surviving, coming back, pulling down the mainsail. And surprisingly, what I can say about when you're in conditions like that is your body and your mind kind of adjust to some level. So once you get into a rhythm and you're just in these waves and you're kind of, you know, plowing through them and over them, um, you find like a steadiness and you can kind of hit your stride and then you just ride it out and i mean it's exhausting because we didn't have an autopilot or anything so we're holding the helm the entire time that's
0: it's so exhausting and i can't i can only imagine just in the small stuff like how exhausted i was hmm. i can't even imagine in that sort of situation how like just when i was gonna ask you is when you get through that thing like the feeling of relief you must have like oh Oh, yeah. Your body I mean, just kind of like drains of all the adrenaline and everything that you've got going.
1: Yeah. When we finally pulled into Cancun, we all slept for like 16 hours straight. <laughs> you know, we'd probably, because even, <laughs> even when you've got like one guy on the helm and the other two are resting, you're not really sleeping because you're on edge for anything. Cause at any moment, you know, somebody could call and say, Hey guys, I need help. You know, we're about to tack or anything. So you're just kind of, you wake up to the most, minute sound you're just kind of like in meditation state you know waiting until it's your turn again and then you just give it all you've got
0: so i i also i think i read something in there about like you sort of like ran out of money at some point in time during this trip so that was another one of my questions as far as like how this thing was funded to happen. Like you save yeah. up, you've got to store food and then buy food at the next place and the next place. Cause I watched, so one of my favorite documentaries, and I've seen it probably four or five times is 180 degrees South. Yeah. I and love he that goes right that you know, close to those same areas to go surfing. Mm-hmm. I just love that. That whole documentary is awesome. Mm-hmm. I like surfing. I like the whole adventure part of it. It is a really awesome documentary. So he kind of does that, that sort of stuff and you get to see how he like is trying to make it work money-wise you know he saves his money the job so how did did you guys do the same thing save up buy stuff well store it and sale oh, how'd that work
1: <laughs> no i mean money was a battle throughout the entire trip you know just as much as the fight in the ocean and the seas and to some regard Um, but no, I mean, I came out of my PhD as a student with, you know, a couple thousand dollars to my name and (laughs) And Taylor came out of the Navy, you know, I mean, they get paid wages in the Navy, but it's not like something you can just really save up and boats are expensive and parts are expensive. Um, we got a refurbished engine and it cost us. So we're talking refurbished old from like the 1960s. Yeah. And it cost us like $20,000. 1960s,
0: yeah. $20,000.
1: Perkins mm-hmm. diesel engine. So, I mean, sailing just not a cheap sport. And the way we did it was we essentially learned how to do everything ourselves. So, everything, so no
0: sponsors. There wasn't like sponsors like. We tried. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we tried. Let me tell you. Yeah, we sent emails out to virtually every kind of brand imaginable. Um, Nobody would bite on it? Nope. That's Maybe crazy. they just thought we were crazy. What we kind were... of responses <laughs> did you get from them? Like, oh man, good luck on your trip? Or is it... Pretty much just, I think by far the average response was nothing. You know, just no response at all. Um, and wow. we got, I mean, we got some kind of bites like with Helly Hansen for instance. And at one point they actually sent us some gear, but it was really kind of like um, secondhand knockoff. sort. you know, it seemed like not secondhand necessarily, but it seemed like the stuff that they had in overstock. Yeah. 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 So um, no monetary sponsors at all throughout our entire trip. Uh, We did have a Patreon page, are you familiar with patreon yeah 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 so um yeah it was just kind of like a crowdfunding but subscription-based site did they that, like
0: watch you live or did you talk on there or something yeah yeah we, well
1: we like part of the whole thing the part of the whole idea was the footage that we were compiling for the documentary every now and then we'd make it into like a video log style from the boat video yeah
0: oh that's awesome this so is we, cool. Like that's neat.
1: We've got all that on YouTube, and that's like how I learned how to edit. That's how I learned how to produce film and um, shoot so you, film. And,
0: so you're learning how to produce this whole thing on the boat as yeah. you're going. Like yeah. this whole learning curve is, you didn't know how to do that. So okay, we're gonna figure it out. Yeah. So you're, you've already gone from figuring out how to sail because <laughs> you don't know how to sail. And now you're figuring out how to work equipment while you're sailing. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I like that. Like, I, 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 I kind of dig it. Like, I guess it gave you something to do too, huh? In yeah. your, in your downtime or if you had downtime yeah, or, absolutely. you know,
1: and that's a lot of what we would do. Like when we came to shore is I would help, um, with like the, you know, like the brunt of, and like the busy work and the heavy lifting sort of jobs that we needed to complete to get the boat back where we needed her to be. Um, But the more technical stuff I would kind of leave Taylor to do, especially with the engine. Taylor was kind of the engine mechanic the whole trip. And then I would go and I'd edit videos and I'd, you know, try to bring in enough money for us to keep going. And usually it was, you know, we'd spend our last dollar and then we'd just take off (laughs) and see how far we got until we needed to pull into shore.
0: So were you ever like really close to run out of food before you'd go?
1: Oh, Yeah. Because um, I
0: think when most people think you're sailing, you're just going to fish, catch fish off the side of the boat. Yeah, or, you we know. did
1: that a lot. Um, but I mean, there's just, you never know what conditions you're going to be in or how reliable that food source is really going to be. So we, like for instance, we were caught in doldrums in the Caribbean as we were coming off the, the tip of Nicaragua and Honduras. Um, we actually got hit by a tropical storm there. So oh, mercy, we don't have like weather predicting radar or anything on the boat. You didn't have that at all. Mm-mm.
0: No, th- did anybody like any sort of weather service radio, uh, radio type of thing with you? Nothing,
1: nothing, and there's nothing really once that's you exciting on there, yeah. So we're just kind of reading the horizon to some extent, uh, old school, I guess, huh? Yeah, which you know only gets you so far, especially during hurricane season because. <laughs> yes. It's not just your average storm that's coming over the horizon. Um, These storms will last, like, three days. And we got hit by a pretty bad one while we were coming around the tip of Honduras and Nicaragua, and our engine seized, which is just the worst-case scenario. It's unrepairable unless you pull into port and you really have, like, just time to sit and work and get your hands dirty and muscle through it. But we were rocking and, you know, 20-foot swells and... um, We ended up hitting doldrums in the middle of the Caribbean. We were still maybe 150 or 200 miles from Panama, which was the nearest repair facility, uh, within maybe a 1,000 miles. (laughs) And doldrums is, you know, like it's what you picture when you think of like movies like Pirates of the Caribbean. The water is just glass on the horizon. And you don't feel a wisp of wind. Like there's nothing to even stir your hair. I don't know how it happens or... Um, it's, you know, cause you rarely really feel that in, in, on land, but when you do, it's like this suffocating humidity in Texas, right? Yeah. Um, so we had no engine, we had no wind and we were just kind of like rocking and to make matters worse, our reserve, um, water tank had cracked and leaked into our bilge. And so oh. we had to start rationing water drastically. So we went from thinking we had maybe, you know, twenty five gallons reserve to realizing we had maybe five gallons left. <laughs> and we were averaging about ten miles a day because
0: And you got a thousand miles to go.
1: Uh just like two hundred, but Oh it's still it's Yeah. <laughs> I mean even on a even on a good day of sailing, two hundred miles with our boat was like two and a half, three days. So we're drinking for, with five gallons of water. Yeah, we're drinking like one of these a day, and it's about on the water with the humidity. It's about like ninety-five to hundred degrees.
0: And you got to be moving day. in it because you got to. You're sailing. You don't have a motor, so you've got to. Yeah, got to so, be manually doing this thing with mm-hmm. the wind and everything else.
1: So our shifts, our shifts when we were um, becalmed like that, one of us would sit in the cockpit, and you just scan the horizon, and you could see wind coming from. Probably like a mile away, you'd see it on the water. It'd just the be kind rip, of like, the,
0: yeah, little like a little
1: texture. Yeah. yeah. All of a sudden, it's not glass. It's kind of like yeah. rough, look like mm-hmm. little sandpaper. Type yeah, thing, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, it's incredible when it happens because you can just watch that come to your boat and then hit you, and then you'll feel like a little draft. Um, but really, the only way we moved for probably a week was when squall lines would come. So. We just went from this <laughs> this stretch of sailing where storms were like the bane of our existence and terrifying and miserable to we were praying for storms to come at us <laughs> so, so that we could move, you know. <laughs> you were really like,
0: oh, a storm! No, we're gonna die! Oh, wait, we're gonna die because we don't have any water and there's no. Please, storm, come yeah. in here and blow us around.
1: Exactly. Uh, so that was fun, but um, that was one of the times where we almost ran out of food as well we pulled into Panama just eating peanut butter out of a jar with a spoon that was all we had left on the boat we had and we had like dry ramen noodles but we couldn't afford to use the water to cook them yeah you know
0: so you're just eating the bricks <laughs> ramen. It was <laughs> our
1: mouths were too dry like we couldn't we couldn't even eat that you know so
0: I imagine at that point you just want water and then mm-hmm. you, you know you're thinking about getting there
1: yeah And when we finally did, you know, of course, we went to the marina restaurant and we both got two beers. (laughs) (laughs) The first thing to do is get the
0: dehydrating beverage. That's awesome. It wasn't our
1: shiningest moment, but we weren't thinking very clearly either. No, I bet you it tasted great. Oh, it did. Yeah. We were just happy to be alive and to have made it there, you know? Heck yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah.
0: So this whole experience, like your family girlfriend, wife, did, were they cool with this whole idea? Did they Were they totally on board? Did they fully understand what was going on?
1: I got kind of, you know, both sides of the spectrum to some extent. Some of my family members were pretty, you know, gung-ho and supportive about it. Um, but the worst I ever really got was um, just my family being concerned for our safety and wanting us to throw in the towel or quit because it was too dangerous or, um, too reckless. Were they watching
0: you the whole time on the Patreon thing? Or yeah, we had a tracker. We had like oh, a, did, okay.
1: a Garmin um, InReach, uh-huh. which you can find like where we were last. You know, sent a signal out. So they watched the weather too
0: and know that y'all were in a storm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mom actually pointed out she sent me um, a Weather Channel article about a week after the storm hit. And it was the first anti-cyclone to ever strike the coast of Chile. And we were in that. <laughs> oh, so, so it was just, I think that in some ways really sums up our trip. Because yeah. uh, we were constantly really hoping for a nice, calm, peaceful stretch of sailing. And kind of freak storms would hit us. And freak conditions in our engine. We were constantly, I mean, we... We went way out of our way we, we, our initial aim before casting off was to get what Taylor called a bulletproof engine and so that's why we funneled the majority of our life savings into this refurbished Perkins engine and it quit on us more times than I can count <laughs> I mean it was <laughs> the biggest POS <laughs> <laughs> to the point that I mean Perkins are really prided on their ability to You can just like pour, you know, like detergent into them and they'll run. People say things like this. Yeah. And we, you know, like we knew how to make it tick and we would always get there. We would always piece things together. And at one point the transmission um, just fell to pieces when we were a thousand miles offshore in the Pacific Ocean. And so we had no engine again. And Taylor pulled a door off its hinges and found that the bolts that were holding that door in place were the perfect width to replace the sheared off plate in the transmission. And so he sawed off the tips of these screws and plugged it in and kind of cast it and then put it back in place. And the transmission worked for, you know, like another hundred miles or something, but it was just, it was always improvising and it was always just you know, what can we use that we have?
0: It's so amazing that like when human beings are put in positions like that, like you guys learning on the, I mean, there really is to something to like learning through experience and just going and figuring it out because you're forced to figure it out in that moment. You don't have a Walmart you can go to or somebody you can ask or, Mm -hmm. You google at your fingertips to be like oh how do i you know where do i get this part and even if you did where mm-hmm. are you gonna get it from right so you've got to figure out how to make things work out of what you have on the boat yeah or what you may find at a pit stop you know wherever you're going so um i just think it's fascinating how you learn like you figured it out like it wasn't there was no option like there's yeah. an option of it doesn't get fixed or you work on it till it gets fixed
1: right yeah and you couldn't Really accept defeat in some of those moments because to just give up would mean essentially to like lay over and die to some extent, you know. And so, we at least weren't going to let that happen. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) obviously,
0: you've been through the storms already. You're like, yeah, Yeah. right,
1: we're going to figure this out now. Yeah, especially when you're like in doldrums, man. There's nothing more frustrating in the world than having nothing that you can do because there's always, when you're sailing, there's always something you can do. To improve the situation and yeah. to move forward. But doldrums were just the one thing that drove us crazy, I guess is the best way to say it.
0: Lots of frustration. Did you guys get in a lot of fights on this? Like in this thing? Like when I say fights, I mean like arguments and frustration. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you're frustrated because you're for stuck sure. with yeah two, three people mm-hmm. for
1: nine months. We were all together, the trip lasted almost two years. Okay. okay. Yeah,
0: but that first initial trip before you flew back was nine months, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So here nine months straight—that's mm-hmm. a long time to just be like, oh yeah. And, and it's not like you're not like a rock band where you have people around you. You're not you're not touring the country or Europe or whatever. You can go to a restaurant. You're on a thirty-six foot boat,
1: right, in the middle of the ocean. There you go. <laughs> like
0: if you're frustrated, you can't just escape that for a moment. And be oh, like yeah. I'm gonna get away from you just for a second.
1: Oh, yeah. And there were, I mean, there were days, I think, I remember most vividly off the coast of Colombia, where Taylor and I probably went two or three days without saying more than like one word at a time to each other. (laughs) We were just done, you know, Like wanted nothing to do with the other person. And, and I think that's perfectly normal. But surprisingly, we only got like real full blown arguments when we were stuck at land. It was always, really? yeah, it was always when we were trying to piece together a way for us to continue the trip that frustrations and tensions seemed to mount and just come to a head. And then, you know, we'd have a little shouting match or whatever. <laughs> um, and usually, you know, it'd be resolved pretty shortly after that. But... And then you
0: just work it out and figure out a plan and, okay, we'll go with this.
1: Yeah, I mean... There was, it was always something different, but we always kind of came up with something. I think, I think the one scenario where it was completely out of our hands was when we were stuck in Ecuador and we had no way of really continuing our trip for two reasons. The one was Peru as a country to check in by sailboat costs $2,500. They treat every cruiser as a commercial vessel and if you, and they claim that they're that they own the waters 200 miles offshore, which... They mar- just
0: make this up? Yeah,
1: which maritime logic dictates that you can only own waters like within 15 miles of your shoreline. Yeah. But Peru says if you come within 200 miles of the Peruvian shore, you have to make your way straight <laughs> to the nearest port of entry. And if you don't do that, your boat could be confiscated. And they've been known in the past to use confiscated sailboats as target practice for the Armada. So you could potentially watch them just blow up your sailboat. (laughs) Oh, no, then you're stuck. So we had no intention of going to Peru, unfortunately, by sailboat. I'm sure by bus, you know, or by plane. It's a great place to visit. But all cruisers know to avoid Peru. And to get around Peru, then, we needed to sail about 3,000 nautical miles without pulling into shore. And with just Taylor and I, that would have been impossible. So... I mean, we had done, I think the longest stretch we'd really done, just the two of us, was along the coast of Colombia, and that was about a week, and we had anchored during the middle of that week. I mean, we spent we spent probably a month going from Panama to Ecuador, but as far as just like nonstop sailing, it was a week off the coast of Colombia, and we were delirious by the end of it. We were hallucinating, we were fatigued, we were kind of going a little insane we were I mean you you, you would do a six hour shift at night and then you do four hour shifts by day and so the most sleep you're ever really getting was like five and a half hours maybe at a time which you know I don't know sort of yeah I mean, exactly you,
0: you gotta try to get to bed like get mm-hmm. to sleep first and then probably right as you get into a good little like rem sleep like you just start to dip your toe into it you're like up, up. It's, it's like exactly the worst it. feeling. Yeah. You know?
1: Which really played into the tension that we had. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Because the rest of the time, like, whenever we were at sea, we were in sync, and, you know, like, we did what we had to do to survive, so um, Taylor and I worked really well as a team, but for some reason, I think it was that lack of sleep off the coast of Columbia. We were just like, <laughs> no words were spoken. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, plus, I mean, you've got all the frustration, then you're trying to plan things out, and usually like different ideas. Mm -hmm. It's just the two of you. You're figuring things out while you're going. Now you're starting to get passionate about like the path that you're taking. Mm -hmm. I see that totally playing out. That's why I asked that because it was curious to me. Like I know it's not just all rainbows and unicorns out there. Like this is, you know, because you're two different human beings. You have two different, you know, you're thinking two different ways. Neither one is maybe wrong. It's just, that's the way it's going to happen you know if you're stuck like that in an intense situation for that long but it probably brought you closer together in the end.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I think when we left, you know, I think it was it went both ways cuz when we left, Taylor was probably one of my best friends. But after everything that we've been through, I really just see him as a brother. You know, it's like you love him and you hate him, but he's family now. So Yeah, well that's part of it. You know, you yeah. spend
0: all of your life, like when you're growing up, you all your moments with your siblings mm-hmm. and that's why siblings fight all the time. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Like there's a difference different fighting between like friends and siblings. hmm Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. So I mean, those sort of things, those tensions and those little struggles seem to bring people closer to like when you get I I kind of look at it as like if you get passionate enough where you're like you're arguing your point back and forth with the person. That means you really really like that person yeah like you're really caring about what you're doing in this situation and where you're headed and where you're going and all that good stuff and what they think yeah yeah, what they think and you really want them to agree with you because Mm. you care for that person yeah at the same time so um so what kind of language barriers were there i mean do you guys speak all (laughs) the different languages when you come (laughs) to these ports
1: that's a good that's a good question
0: now we're now we're finding like you gotta find food. I guess that's kind of easy because you can point. But then if you're fixing boats, I mean,
1: yeah, I mean you can add that to another one of the steep learning curves that we experienced on this trip. <laughs> <laughs> we had a book on the boat that was just you know Spanish translations sort of thing, Um and we'd both taken it in high school. But there's we were, different
0: dialects though down the coast. Yeah, yeah. like you're you're running into like uh, where you guys are going. It changes drastically as you go down
1: yeah the pacific coast of colombia was by far the hardest for us to understand or to speak like we would say what we thought was perfect clear cleaning or not english uh, spanish and they wouldn't understand what (laughs) and and then we'd confirm with each other you know like yeah i'm saying the right thing right yeah (laughs) they wouldn't understand so when they can't understand you you're you're pretty hopeless but um yeah i mean you just figure out ways to kind of get by in certain countries, if there's decent data and stuff, they pretty much only have 3G down there. But you get a sim, a local SIM card, and you um, pay like a monthly plan or a weekly plan or something, and you can use Google Translate. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you guys did? Sometimes, you know, if like if we just had very particular things that we needed to convey and we didn't really know how to say it. <laughs> I gotta go. To the okay.
0: Yeah. Bathroom. Over. Back again. <laughs> That that easy. It's it's the way it plays out. I used to like how do how do people why do people say they take a break? Like why do they say? Why don't they just pause it and then continue the conversation? It's because like it's necessary to let them know because it doesn't always pick back up right at the same spot. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, that's why you do that. I get this. Like the whole production side of it. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah. I know that sounds simple. But to me, it was like I thought you just got on the microphone and talked. <laughs> <it. laughs> so you've got this language thing you're, you've figured out, right? More or less, so, kind of. <laughs> like were people to real hot. Like, did you find hospitable people that were willing to help you?
1: Oh yeah. Um, um, I mean, it it varied, you know, from city to city and culture to culture. But for the most part, uh, other cruisers are great so
0: oh it's like a little brotherhood of exactly
1: yeah because they've just
0: been through the same exact thing you've mm -hmm. been through and they know what you're like they know what you're up against
1: and the further off the beaten path you go the more connected those cruisers really are you know so like if you're i mean if you're just doing kind of the roadmap trip around sailing around the world you're going to run into a bunch of people that have too much money and have somebody else run their boat and they want nothing to do with you because you know Taylor and I were scruffy vagabond youth to most Which of the I cruisers. Awesome, <laughs> I think
0: that's awesome. I used to have, like fantasize about doing that sort of thing, oh, you know, yeah. just like bare bones, barely making it by, like limping you into port every time. It's like not trimmed right. And yeah, exactly. Just, I mean, my hair would afro out because that's the way mine, you know, the curly hair would be and just, you know, dirty and uh-huh. working hard, like. I don't know why that's appealing to me at all. It doesn't sound like, none of those things sound like, oh, what's your dream life? Kind of look like a homeless person. Stay on the water.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much how we looked a lot of times, pulling into port. But once you get far enough south, uh, especially like outside of Panama, once we got south of Panama, everyone was just like super welcoming and supportive. And they'd, you know, like they'd point you to the right guy in town that you needed to talk to, or he was a reliable person. That's awesome. um, so we never we never really got like cheated, I wouldn't say, except in like Cancun, maybe <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know place. exactly yeah. where where they just are you know trying to wring you of every penny you've got. You do have to be careful though i mean we got we got kind of savvy about it toward the end, but in South America, they definitely kind of look at you as like sailing is a very posh sport for them, you know, so uh it's really only like kind of higher end like hire up people who sail as a sport and as a hobby so they just assume if you have a sailboat that it's you know a million dollar yacht
0: <laughs> yeah so you've got the money you like we'll just take it. or we'll just yeah fudge a little here or whatever yeah. uh-huh now what happens now like so after that thing after that you've got all this footage you've ed- like you've been spending your time editing it you edit it while you're here what happens to the process this is like where's the movie going from here
1: Yeah, well, I'm a writer, and this whole idea was, you know, me chasing a story, but I have become a little bit too close to it over the years, if that makes sense. Um, So, for me personally, with something like this, when it's your own experience, I like to let things marinate and distance myself from it. But for the documentary in particular, I'm kind of like handing that off to our production team to some extent. We've got Uh, incredible director Glenn Holston who you know he's created fantastic documentaries in the past and while I'm always going to be there to help shape and to guide the narrative um, I'm really looking to these guys to pull the gems out of there and to really kind of create a story that's compelling and that is comprehensive of our journey because if we tried to tell the whole trip you know it'd be It'd be a ten hour movie. <laughs> yeah. So, maybe longer. Yeah. I mean
0: you're talking nine months worth of and we're I mean, well, that's just the first trip. Two years worth of footage, yeah. basically, right?
1: Yeah, so there's just kinda of too much and we're also trying to tie in, you know, some bigger issues into this piece and yeah. Um and that's been the the point from the very beginning. So, uh that's something I'm kinda of like happily handing off and I'll always be a part of it to some extent and I'm going to be in the edit suite you know when we're kind of outlining everything but right now we're kind of at a standstill just because a lot of the funders that we've been talking to we're waiting to get a response back which isn't abnormal you know I think with big projects like this it takes time to really let things fall into place
0: but so why as a writer do you have to Like, do do you like to step back from things? I think not get too close. I mean, I I get why you don't want to get, like, the movie, you get too close, and you want to put everything in there, and you're like, this part, and, you know, you might see something different than somebody that didn't experience it sees. Mm -hmm. So I get that part, but why, as a writer, like, you you made that, that comment, like, it's a habit that you have for a certain purpose.
1: I think time gives you clarity when it's your own experiences, you know? I think... There's for me, especially in this trip, with all that we've been through, there's a lot of emotional ties to some of what we've gone through and a lot of kind of personal attachment to our narrative, which at the end of the day, my story might not be the one that's going to connect with the most people, if that makes sense. Yeah. So we're really looking for a narrative that can be formatted as a backbone to a documentary that addresses a bigger issue and that you know, we're hoping we'll kind of provide a solution to that. So, and and that's been our driving force from the very start. A lot of people will say all (laughs) kind of the mishaps and misadventures that we've endured in this trip, what kept us going, you know, when we ran out of money for the umpteenth time, why did we not just give up and scrap the boat and fly home? And it was always because the farther along we got, the more we felt like we had an obligation to see this thing through because we were, finally in a position to potentially do some good and it's a issue that's really personal to both taylor and myself so
0: well now what happened to taylor after this thing too like where's he does he live here where's he live
1: he's uh he's currently in san antonio but he's okay. planning so Texas. Mm-hmm, but he's planning to move to galveston and start kind of attending tamu galveston the naval or not the naval academy the maritime academy there yeah and Um, that's kind of his game plan, but we're both in the short term, leaving ourselves available and flexible for the documentary. There's going to be some more filming that's going to be done down here in Texas. There's going to be some interviews of, especially the guys who joined us along the way. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah. Kel Warner and John Rose. They're great. They're both rescue swimmers with Taylor and John actually joined us for, I mean, pretty much half the trip from Ecuador all the way around Cape Horn. So he was a huge piece of the story. Um, and then anything else that we really think of that can help draw more in to this, but yeah, I think Taylor, um, having completed this trip and being back in this filling world, he's he's finally allowing himself like a moment to just settle, and that was really hard for him coming out of the military. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's I think it's been really great.
0: Kind of what he needed coming out was like this extreme experience. You know, I've had I've had several like military people on and I had a, a, army special forces guy on here that was kind of talking about that same struggle mm-hmm. of just, it was really the, like the community and the brotherhood of the people. And, you know, he loved everything about what he did and the struggle wasn't that it was finding it here. Mm-hmm. So I went by here, like the everyday civilian life, you know, finding that same sort of that same sort of bond in something and something to follow. So I guess getting out, doing something extreme, like extreme, like you guys did. And like, I guess that was my question. How did it affect him after the trip? Like his exit from the military?
1: Oh yeah. And that was always kind of part of the plan was to make the sailing trip, his odyssey, you know, and to use that as his transition into military Um, or transition into the civilian world. Yeah. And, I mean, a lot of studies have kind of recently come out saying that the most dangerous year of a a soldier's life is their first year out of the military.
0: I can believe that, for sure.
1: And that was, you know, part of this was, this was going to be, you know, the purpose that kind of carried Taylor through that first year. And...
0: um, Do you, like, in this thing, do you promote a message of doing something like that. Like when these guys come back, like finding something to go do some sort of adventure or like trying new things, trying something
1: different. Absolutely. And, um, that, I mean, that's not unprecedented either. We actually ran into a sailboat in the Panama canal that was manned by active duty British military who were on a decompression mission after serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, I mean, and you know they're not their military system isn't perfect but they've got some kind of program in place to help their soldiers and their veterans decompress and
0: that's a good, so that's like when you say a decompression mission then they're they're commissioned by the government to do something like that
1: exactly yeah oh. so it's fully funded and it's part of their program and they can choose they can either go sailing or they can go like on a hiking adventure you know so they're i mean there're different options that they can they can go through, but did you study uh, all that stuff when you were in Scotland? A little bit, um, but they—I mean—they still have a lot of the same struggles, and um, one of the one of the reasons for that is there's just kind of you—you you, you look at veterans and military in general, and they spend six to eight weeks conditioning soldiers just in boot camp, right? To come out of the civilian world, then they spend up to two years training them to be. You know whatever pipeline or specialty they're going to be, and then when it's time for them to outprocess and to leave the military, there's virtually nothing that helps them transition out. So Taylor, for instance, I think all he really got that helped him was a program called TAP, Transition Assistance Program, and it was a five-day long course that essentially taught him how to apply for government jobs. <laughs> and that's all that it was. It had and there's no education about. You know what your body and your mind are going to go through coming out of the military. Yeah, how like a change in a pace of life is going to affect you know your moods and just like your hormones and what's going to be happening in your body. None of that is really addressed. Absolutely, I think
0: the hormone one is a huge deal.
1: Yeah, and these guys don't know that, and they're not told anything about it. Taylor PTSD wasn't even brought up when Taylor was leaving the military, so he that's
0: like just recent.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of ground that could be easily made. But there's also, I think, a need for a program to help veterans transition out of the military. And I think it should involve, you know, some sort of like physical aspect to it. There needs to be that exercise that allows for an outlet of epinephrine and endorphins and cortisol and everything. Um, but But there also needs to be like education involved and there needs to be like time. Your body needs time and your brain needs time to adjust. So
0: I I think it's an interesting dynamic that you did on the sailboat and the like you wanted to do it for the veterans and coming out. I think you not being like in the military, but studying it. So you you don't have the same and this is something that got said to me when I when I talked to that guy in the special forces thing that really Mm -hmm. opened my eyes to it. He's he's like you may not have seen everything that I've seen because I kept saying, like, I can't relate to you in this sense, but, you know, I'm empathetic towards it. And he was like, you haven't seen what I've seen. People mistake, like, just because you haven't been a soldier doesn't mean that you don't have the same feelings that we have. And I think that's... He's like, that's where some of that disconnect comes in. Like, we still feel the same feelings. Like, you can still feel what I feel. Yeah, they're still human. Yeah, so, like, you understanding that because you're on a boat trip now with this guy who just came out of the military, you were never in. So now you guys are stuck there and now all of a sudden that doesn't matter.
1: Mm -hmm. If
0: you're feeling the same feelings, going through the storms together and working things out and the same fears, like he's just not like, Oh, I'm in the military. Trust me. I got this. You know, we're not going to (laughs) die here in the ocean, (laughs) you know? So that's, that's part of the, I think the fascinating factor of it with, both of y'all going through it, and then did you come out of that with like maybe a better understanding of all of that stuff?
1: Oh, for sure, yeah. And um, I mean, just kind of talking to Taylor and witnessing some of it, and seeing how being on the water is is really kind of like, it, for especially for Taylor, but I think for for certain people, it could be a perfect exercise in that regard because you have like these really intense fight or flight moments where you're struggling just to survive but there's also this combination of serene beauty and a reminder of the value of life and just kind of the wildlife and the nature and seeing a sunrise after a storm, you know, all of that. Yeah. All of that's just kind of reinvigorating, especially to somebody who has come out of a really dark place and has kind of hit rock bottom and has been questioning the value of life. So getting getting that outlet that you've had and that you've relied on you know for years and years of service but having it in a different context where it could reinforce you know the importance of continuing on to see the next day and why it's worth it would be invaluable to veterans so
0: if thank that you c- man
1: yeah yeah if that could be implemented in a program somehow um, and that's that's really the story we're trying to tell with the whole documentary so
0: i like it Man, I like the whole thing. Where can everybody find all this stuff? Like, do you still have your YouTube videos up?
1: Yeah, yeah. So they can go peruse and watch it. And yeah, we've got a trailer for the documentary. So Heller High Seas" is the name of the documentary. You can Google it. HellerHighSeas.com dot com has the trailer and all the information you'll really need to follow us and to hit us up. So check it out.
0: Any way people can help, like distribute it, donate to it, anything like that that you have going on, or yeah. or.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You can um, reach out to either of us, Taylor or me, or our producer, Shane Gregg. His is that through the
0: website? Because I saw his number on the website. And I was yeah. like, holy cow, that guy put his phone number on there. Yeah, he's serious. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's serious business. <laughs> it's
1: a grassroots documentary. You know, like This is a movement that needs to happen on the floor level. So.
0: Well, I want to watch it. Like The Instagram is great. Um, reading about it in the story, and I'm like... Now, hearing that you guys didn't have any real sailing experience at all in open water, I'm like, holy smokes! I want to see how you filmed it. Like, the whole process of that thing just is, I can't wait. Yeah, I want to watch it. I'm gonna definitely check out all the YouTube videos. I haven't done that yet either. So, I didn't know it was on there. Yeah, I didn't know it was there. So, all right, best place like the best place is just the website to get to you.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and then your Instagrams is Heller High Seas. Yeah, everything's Heller High Seas, Facebook, Instagram, whatnot.
0: Gotcha, man. Well, thanks, Steven. Yeah, Appreciate it, man.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.